Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you joined us. Today, we're going to talk about our students' brains. Rarely do I laugh out loud when reading educational research, but recently I had to chuckle when I read this. Our students' brains are paying attention, just not to us. By understanding how our students' brains function and cope during these long school days, we will be so much better equipped to maximize engagement, memory, attention span, and mostly the love of learning. We have a great expert today, Laurel Schmidt. She's going to guide us in our quest to answer this age-old question, what is that between our students' ears? Hi, Laurel. So excited that you're with us today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Okay, so three things I want to tell about Laurel, because she's very accomplished. Um, She has devoted her career to developing inquiry-based strategies, and I love this quote from you. You can work your kids like rented mules, but if you're working against the brain, it's tough to reach your goals. I love that. You have a very interesting background as an educator and author, but here's a really unique part, a museum educator, so I can't wait to hear about that. Laurel is a prolific author. She's written three books for Heinemann, Social Studies That Sticks, I love that title, Classroom Confidential, Gardening in the Minefield, and then a book also for Three Rivers Press, which is called Seven Times Smarter. Laurel, your work is so unique. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what your educational passion is? Sure, I'd love to share that with you. My very, very distant background, which really led me to all of this, is that I had a fabulous father who was curious about everything. And he looked at his kids as companions on some kind of adventure where he was wandering through the world trying to figure out the cosmos and plants and architecture and what rivers do. And so I really, from my very earliest days, was trained in inquiry, which simply meant, let's be curious together. That's the way my dad approached the world. And um, I, I started teaching early, I think, because he was a great teacher to me. I wanted to be a teacher. I knew that very early on. And so I got my credential. And as soon as I really started teaching, well, it didn't take a genius to figure out that there was so much curriculum and so little time that there was no way I was going to be able to teach my kids everything that was laid out. So I really had to figure out what's the most important thing I can teach them? What's the most valuable thing I can teach them, knowing that they're going to go on and learn and learn and learn for years after I'm out of their lives? And so I wanted to teach them to think. And the way I thought about it was that they needed an owner's, an owner's manual for their brain so they could investigate and learn about anything on their own when I wasn't around. And then, so then my job was to help them learn about their brain and give them lots of practice in the classroom across the whole curriculum. And that's what I did. And I had confidence in Socrates who really he started this inquiry method or the Socratic method. He said, everything is knowable to the learner if the teacher asks the right question. And so my work has been about crafting questions, which is harder than it looks, because in order to write a really good question, to ask a really good question, what I call the big questions, 
Teachers have to have an intimate knowledge of the content, but then they also have to be able to tease out what are the deeper questions underlying here and present them to their kids in such a way that the kids can then grapple and figure out and find their way through the content by thinking. That's how I work. I grapple. And I have to say right at the beginning that inquiry sounds like it's antithetical to the approach to curriculum that is prepackaged, where there's artificial pacing and where teachers are surveilled for compliance. But in fact, inquiry is one of the most important, important things that we can do in school within our curriculum because we need a population that's educated and people who can think analytically and deeply and independently. And I have to say that there are many, many communities of teachers out there who are doing what I did, who are pursuing inquiry as a powerful tool for learning. You know, I love this quote about let's be curious together. And the fact that you just mentioned your dad, I'm sorry, I'm just having to just pull it together here. That is just such a nice thing that you just did. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, something that called the caveman brain, you know, what is it? Because we, we, we're learning so much about the brain and teaching about the role of novelty. You know, if someone comes to my classroom, I can't help but look over. We're, you know, our brain is drawn over there. We know about the, the chemicals changes that change in our kids throughout the day. Can you share a little bit about what is the caveman brain? Let's start there. Sure. And it's really, it's the primitive brain, uh, the early brain. And what it is, it's the part of the brain that developed earliest in early man that and its primary task was to help humans survive. And that's what this part of the brain is devoted to. It's a part of the brain that was on the lookout all the time for danger or opportunity. Because if you think of a caveman, and I know, I mean, that's a very broad kind of description. But if you think of early men discovering their environment, whenever they saw something new, they had to figure out, is this dangerous or is it an opportunity? Is it going to eat me? Or is it edible? Is it a friend or is it a foe? And so there's one part of the brain that's specialized in noticing novelty. And it's called the striatum, but it's also called Magoon's brain because there was a professor at UCLA, Professor Magoon, who studied all about this. And he really helped us understand this idea of learning because what he said is the way we learn is that the brain notices something new, novel. And then it goes through this process of exploring what that thing is, assessing it, and then acting upon it. And that happens every single time our brain encounters something new. And what happens is it responds to, it responds to the novelty and the challenge, and the brain begins to secrete dopamine, which stirs the learner to action, and cortisol, which produces a sensation of satisfaction. So the brain, as soon as it learns something, it feels good. But then what happens is all those um, chemicals alter the brain on a molecular level, and those molecules are stored as um, proteins, which are memories, which is how we learn. In other words, the brain has this whole mechanism inside that takes the information, figures out what to do with it, and then stores it so the next time around, we know what to do with that. 
And what is interesting, what researchers actually say about curiosity is that it is our primal state of awareness, which means when you're looking at a classroom full of kids, they are curious all the time. The question is, will they be curious about what we're doing or will their curiosity take them to investigate other things around them, other students, what they can invent with a pencil and a rubber band, other kinds of things like that. But it's, it's a part of the brain that is constantly on the alert, ready to grasp something. And which is why we need to look at the way we work with kids so much and say, how do we attract that curiosity? How do we harvest all that energy that's inside the brain and put it in service of the learning that we're proposing to children? Now, that's really fascinating. Let's move a little bit out of the cave there and into the classroom. I want to talk about a couple of things here. Uh, I want you to uh, maybe you can combine these two. Tell us a little bit about what is inquiry-based teaching what, and some examples so we can kind of get our mind around it. And the flip side sort of is something you talk about called the designated answerer. So if you could maybe go to both of those places and talk about that a little bit. Okay, so inquiry if we look at it broadly, is basically approach to learning that is investigating instead of ingesting. It's also called productive discomfort. And that's because instead of presenting information to students, we ask questions. And the questions are supposed to be open-ended. They're provocative. They encourage an analytic discussion. Um, it's, it's really the idea that um, it's an invitation. Inquiry is an invitation to wonder. And the teacher's work then is to craft a question that is deeply embedded in the work that she wants the students to investigate. But rather than saying X, Y, Z about the Civil War, the teacher asks a question. And what Socrates talks about is the idea that if you write, ask the right questions, you elicit what they already know. This is the whole idea of prior knowledge. You pull out, the question pulls out everything that they know, and then it leads them to what can be known by thinking. So they take their prior knowledge, and via those questions, they then construct new knowledge. And it is a co-construction, because in inquiry, typically, lots of kids are talking. That's the whole beauty of an open-ended question, which leads us to this idea of the designated answerer. Designated answerers developed um, as part of the way that we socialize children in school. From very, very early on, when kids come to school, they get how, how to do school. And in, um, in the past, um, it was the case that the teacher would ask a question. Now, the teacher knows the answer to that question, and there's only one right answer. And the way school goes is that a child, maybe two or three, will raise their hands because they are confident and they know those answers and they're eager to give the answer to the teacher. And that child answers and the teacher smiles and bestows some kind of grace on that child and moves on to the next question. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And what evolves in a classroom then is that the, most of the students understand that what is required is a right answer. And 
sadly, if you give the wrong answer, then what you're typically subjected to is social humiliation. It's very, very difficult for a child in a classroom to give the wrong answer and have 30 peers looking, staring, snickering, whatever it else happens. And so what children learn very early on is if they don't have the right answer, they don't say anything. And therefore, it just, it, the, the conversation shrinks down to a teacher and the designated answer, and they go back and forth, back and forth. And the lesson moves along quite smartly. It looks pretty good. But in fact, all it is is a couple of people trading comments. And then for the other kids, so of course the teacher's happy, it's moving. The designator answer is happy because the designated answer is getting lots and lots of praise. And the rest of the kids are happy too because guess what? They can have a rich fantasy life. They don't have to do anything. The only thing that disturbs the rest of the class is the day that the designated answer doesn't show up and is sick or moves to another school. And then all of a sudden, um, the game falls apart. So there's a code of silence sort of in a classroom, which means that the dialogue really isn't a dialogue. It's a monologue with a prompt. And the other children are losing out. Um, so the designated answer, that's, that's what it is. It's the antithesis. That kind of a classroom is the antithesis of inquiry because, in fact, there's very little thinking going on. And with, you, with, with students, uh, let's talk for a minute about students who might be reluctant learners or they're struggling a little bit. If I don't have that answer, um, or what happens in my brain? Am I going to start withdrawing from the task if, if I'm feeling this way about school right now? Absolutely, because it it looks like a rigged game. The, if you know the teacher knows the question, knows the answer, then all it is is an exercise in who already has the answers. And if you are a struggling learner, or here's the other thing that's very interesting about inquiry type classrooms versus a standardized uh, approach, uh, didactic approach. Very bright kids often have answers that are really perceptive, that show that they're thinking deeply and in divergent ways. But their answer doesn't fit with the typical answer. And so they, if they were to give their answer, which might be a speculation or a hypothesis or some kind of a hunch, they might very well be shut down or humiliated, because people don't understand the depth of what they're thinking. And that's the beauty of inquiry, is when you give an open-ended question, and you announce by the very act of asking open-ended questions, where there's no right answer, no yes or no, um, you're announcing, I want to know what you think. And you'll hear that with teachers who are using inquiry over and over again. What they'll say is, what do you think about what might, and the message is, I want to know what you think. I don't know it, but I can only find out about this if I ask you, and I'm here to listen as you think. And then the divergent thinker, who has a very strange, weird idea that actually has some intelligence deeply embedded, and the other child who might be a second language learner, who only has two or three words that they can add to that conversation, both of those thinkers, both of those kids can participate, and the teacher can say, that's very interesting. What else? And that 
what else then prompts other kids? And you see in that moment there when the divergent thinker or the second language learner or the struggling learner is able to be in the conversation and the teacher acknowledges them, she's giving them and all students permission to think and is acknowledging them as equals in the conversation. And so she dignifies them. And in over time, what opens is the floodgates and all these brains that were dying to think about something, to grapple with something, come out of hiding and you get a very lively classroom conversation. That's wonderful. And the, you mentioned in your writing that students have kind of a Google between their ears. Um, if we stay with that comparison, what kinds of questions would we type in that search bar for Google for kids? They, I say that they have a Google between their ears because the brain is basically a question answering machine. That's what the brain does. It, it reaches, it, it notices, it goes back to this whole striatum, the Magoon's brain. It looks for something and asks questions about it. And then it seeks. The brain starts looking for the answer and it looks and looks and looks. It's like if we, we look at a picture of a movie star and we think, oh God, what is that person's name? And we can't think of it. We can't think of it. We can't think. And 10 minutes later, you're doing something completely different. You forgot all about the movie star and the name pops into your head because your brain was working all that time seeking answers. And so that's what kids, that's what kids' brains do. They, um, they're working all the time. And it just depends on what we, what we present to them, what we prompt um, them to think about. Um, that's, that's where the quality of the learning experience um, happens. So I'm listening to this, and I'm starting my lessons for the week. I'm kind of on board here. And you, you admittedly refer to this transition as potentially a little messy. Um, in fact, you say there might be some downright, downright intellectual awkwardness on this uh, because some students are comfortable with, hey, you leave me alone and I'll do the same in class, right? So how would we get started? If I'm a teacher going in tomorrow, what would, I, what would be a good starting point for me? Okay, well, let's just talk about that messiness for a while because there, it's an awkwardness is what it really is because it's a transition from one state of being to another, from passivity to activity on the part of the learners. And there, there has to be built up a kind of trust. Um, really, that's one of the critical things when you're moving into inquiry is students need to trust that when you say, I want to know what you think, um, that they're not going to get zapped because you'll say, no, that's not the right answer. I'm sorry. No, that's not where we're going here, or we're not talking about that. They have to trust that when you say, what do you think all you're searching for is their thoughts, and then you will make sense of it, and then you will make sense of it. So the first is to if you're going to get started, is to choose a topic that's juicy, that's got a lot of potential for conversation, for speculation, for thinking. And then, this is, and this is the, the hard work for the teacher, think of a really good open-ended question. And then you ask it, and what might happen? And here's where the awkwardness comes in. A couple of kids, the designated learners, of course, will have their hands up immediately, or maybe not. 
Because if you ask an open-ended question, everybody senses this is different. There isn't an answer here. Um, so a lot of students will hang back and there will be silence. And actually, this is one of another one of the big, big skills that teachers need to acquire when they're doing inquiry is they have to be able to tolerate the silence. If they ask an open-ended question, they have to be able to let kids think for a while because that's what you're really asking them. You're saying, think. So they need to be given the time to think. And in that time, there might be silence in the classroom. And we know that's very uncomfortable for teachers. They've done lots of studies on um, wait time and to to see how long is a teacher willing to wait and tolerate the silence before jumping in with her own comments. And the study said that it was around three seconds. So that's not very long. Three seconds is not very long to let kids think about a meaty, juicy topic. So if you're going to do this, you get a good question, you ask the good question, and then you have to tolerate the silence. And here's what I tell people to do in that silence. I tell them to smoke. And of course, people are scandalized when I tell them you should be smoking. And what I mean is people who smoke don't usually like to, people who really like to smoke, they don't care. They don't want to be interrupted. They don't want to talk. They just want to smoke. They just want to be left alone. So what I tell teachers is inside your head, you just smoke, which means you relax. You don't want to do anything. And you send the message to your kids I'm relaxed here. I'm not doing anything. I'm just waiting for you to think. And eventually, one or two kids will raise their hands, give an answer, and that's your chance to say, wow, that's really interesting. That's so fascinating on the wait time. I know, I see myself in that too. It is. I wonder where that comes from, where we have trouble just having the silence for a moment. Well, I, I think there re there is reinforcement to that fear of silence in um pacing curriculums that tell teachers you have to be on this page on this day and you have to cover you have to cover this much material like we're all in the upholstery business right. and in order for that to happen you got to move along smartly and so sitting there with silence is is antithetical to the idea of covering the curriculum i think some people are also worried that you know, their principal might walk in and then the teacher's saying nothing the kids are staring at the teacher the teacher's staring at the kids and what you know, they might think it would look a little odd, but it's not. It's what thinking is about. And if you can tolerate 10 or 15 seconds of silence and give your kids time to think, you will reap such a conversation that it will, you, it will be a, a, an amazing sense of satisfaction for all involved. Well, before I forget, I want to remind everybody or let you know, Laurel has graciously shared some really fascinating downloads on my expert. You just type in her name. A um, couple of my favorites. She has a geography lesson with a tablecloth that I just love. It's so ingenious. There's something called How to Make Dead People Talk. So you can go go to my expert. There's also a link to her website. Share with us what your website is. Uh, it's w I have a, um, a website called Art and Inquiry. And if you go to that website or back to Ed Expert, I wanted to say this, um, Susie, is that on the Ed Expert website in my section, if teachers go there, there is a link to my whole chapter 
on inquiry. It's called Great Teachers Don't Take No or Yes for an Answer. And they can click on that for free and they can download the whole chapter on inquiry. Marvelous. And thank you for doing You've been so gracious about putting things up there. So you, I, I just so appreciate you sharing that with educators. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the future because um, I know in the first chapter of my last book, and this took me a while to research, but I was amazed by it. Employers today, they're looking for something very, very different than they used to look for. They are looking for problem solvers, people who can really work well in a team, people who have strong communication skills. Um, and so we're in the, we're, we're also working with, we have our learning targets, we have all of our pacing guys, we have all of that. But when we, when we look at what employers are looking for to build those skills, it's, it's not going to happen in the sort of push out model and a whole group kind of a setting. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what this approach with, with the thought provoking questions and the wait time and the inquiry approach, how can, how that can prepare them for the future? I think it's a fantastic preparation for the future because there are no right answers about the future at this point. Nobody knows what it's going to be. We don't know what the jobs are going to look like. We don't know what the skills are going to look like, which means people are going to have to keep adapting and adapting and adapting. And adaptation is basically, once again, Magoon's brain at work. It says, oh, what do I see? Here's something novel. Here's something new. What is the challenge here? What can I do about it? Here are some of the things that an inquiry approach develops in kids. All right. We talk about it in general. It, it develops critical thinking skills, but very specifically, it encourages analytic discussion. And this is a key thing that people are going to need to be able to do in the future is not just to be analytic on their own, but to be analytic in teams because more and more people are working in teams. It also um, helps students examine their attitudes, their beliefs, their, the knowledge that they have, and apply logic to all of that. And these are, again, tremendous skills when you're working cooperatively. Another thing is that because they're constantly um, presented with open-ended questions, it creates a situation that's collaborative and open-minded as opposed to competitive and individualized. That's one of the big differences in an inquiry classroom. It's collaborative learning um, by virtue of everyone being in the conversation as opposed to competitive and individualized. And what it does is it promotes respect for varying points of view. So all of those are critical skills that any employer is going to value because we are moving so quickly that we need people whose brains are alert to change and then are open to the possibilities, not not the probabilities, not the right answer, but the possibilities that may present themselves. Well, I'm going to um, mention a couple of my takeaways. I've learned so much from you today, and I'm going to mention a few. And then if you will chime in with a couple of yours, some of the things that I know that I'm going to work on is, is thinking about this in terms of investigating, not ingesting to arouse their curiosity, a good starting point is come up with a really juicy topic and craft some really open-ended questions. I'm, I'm going to rethink this designated answer. Designated hitters are good. Designated answers, not so much. Um, and that wait time, boy, do I see myself in that one because I get awkward with any silence any time of the day. So that is definitely an area of growth for me. What couple of things could you add today from our, from that to that list? 
I would say um, that I look at questions. I called questions WML, Weapons of Mass Learning. So if you can think about questions as being this incredible engine that um, gets, gets the day going and it can carry all through the day, that inquiry learning is pan-curricular. You can use it in math. You can use it in social science, in literature, in science. It's, it's not a standalone activity, but it can creep into and be embedded in any area of your curriculum for five minutes a day or five hours a day. Um, and then the last thing I would like to say, well, two more things. One is that it can be so stimulating to teach this way that you will look up and the clock, it's like the clock has raced around its face and there's no, no time left and you have to throw your kids out. But in fact, you'd all like to stay and see what's the next great thing. What's the next great idea that's coming. It feeds on itself and eventually, and this is the highest, highest accolade to a teacher. Eventually what happens is questions, children start posing questions to each other. Good open-ended questions, challenging each other's thinking. And when those questions break out between students, that's the time for a teacher to just step back and say, job well done. Um, and then the final, I'd love to recommend one book to all your listeners. Um, there's a, just a beautiful, beautiful book called The Water is Wide. And um, it's about taking a group of kids who had no educational opportunities, no educational future, and a teacher with great, great um, vision and a year spent with these kids and what it looked like. And so if you'd like to see what a really um, a sort of humane inquiry approach to teaching, starting from the bottom up, um, The Water is Wide is just a beautiful book. Well, I will definitely uh, check into that. And uh, listening to you today reminds me of something I read in one of John Hattie's books um, that said, you know, the brain is really just fine sitting there doing nothing. And that's a good reminder. I'm fine just sitting here. But it takes compelling tasks and, and compelling questions to get the brain to want to jump in. And that makes the brain want to jump in and participate. So I've learned so much from you today, Laurel Schmidt. Thank you so much for being with us. I don't want to say goodbye until we thank every educator for making so many things possible for kids every single day. Every day you open doors for our children. Thank you so much for listening today. Tune in every week for a conversation with a really interesting educational thought leader, just like Laurel Schmidt. Laurel, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our authors' work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.